one of the things I said very publicly in the hospital to to one of the nurses that I that I regret saying was like, you know, you guys don't want me as in the brown Muslim, you want the doctor. So if you could peel my brownness and my Muslim off and you could just keep the doctor and put the other part of me on a registry, you would do that. And you proved it by the way you voted, you know, and, and that's probably going too far, but this is how I felt after the election. That's Dr. Ayaz Virji. I'm Carvel Wallace, and this is Closer Than They Appear. Dr. Virji is the town doctor in the 1,400-person town of Dawson, Minnesota. Maybe you read about him in the Washington Post. He and his wife and three children are the only Muslim family in Dawson. He's been the town doctor there for the past three years. He used to work for this big healthcare chain in Pennsylvania, but then he left that job because he wanted to focus on working with people in rural communities. And he did. And it was fine. He was happy with his choice. Until November 9th, 2016. Because that morning, he woke up to find that nearly half the people in his town, a lot of them his patients, had voted for Trump. And it was very easy to see who voted for Trump and who didn't because the people who didn't made it known to me that I, I can't believe it, you know, this, whatever. <laughs> and the people who did were very quiet. I mean, just didn't say anything. And, you know, I was like, how can you be quiet? This guy wants to put me on a registry and you voted for him? And then the next day when my son comes in and says, Dad, can't we just pretend we're not Muslim so we can stay in the U.S.? I mean, how do you respond to that? How, how do you be silent about that? Last week, I talked with Shireen Marisol Miraji. If people did something as simple as just walking down the street and saying hi to their neighbors, like, something will break, something will soften. And after that conversation, I felt like I had a clear mandate. Go out and talk to people in person, not just from a distance. People who might be different from me, who might not like me, who might even reject me. Start having these face-to-face conversations so we can find some common ground. If you didn't hear that episode, you should go listen to it. It's actually pretty good. And maybe you'll feel like I did, that going out and talking to people is a little thing, but it's also a big thing. Like, it's going to be painful, but we're going to make progress, little by little, you know, person by person. So please give a round of applause for Dr. Ayaz Virji. But then talking with Dr. Virji kind of gave me pause. Because he's really experiencing the pain part. So the purpose of today's discussion is to know one another and to dispel myths. As I mentioned in the Quran, chapter 2... A few months after the election, he started doing exactly this. He started going out and talking to his neighbors. Like literally giving public lectures, first in Dawson and then in towns around Dawson, about Islam. This is not an exclusive religion that says, hey, listen, you're either one of us or you're, you're of the people who are not saved. Islam doesn't do that. About what his religion actually teaches, about Muslims and who they really are. And it's been going... There are passages in the Quran that mention about fighting for Allah. Sure. So you've mentioned a number of points, and I think... Well, I'll let him tell you. I mean... 
we've gotten, or I've gotten over 700 kind of letters and gifts in the mail and emails from people who, and it's just so heartfelt and touching. Now there's also those death threats coming in. Mm -hmm. Being called the Antichrist during one of the lectures, I mean, to me, it was just, you know, it was, it was interesting. It was an educational experience that somebody actually thinks that I'm the devil because I'm talking, because I'm having a conversation. Yeah. Somebody even sent me a death threat in Latin. We had to look it up, you know. So those people are going to be there, and you know, I don't want them to dominate the work. And, and, and this work, again, that I'm doing, I don't want to do this. This is, this is a burden, if anything. It's just, it feels like I should do it. It feels like I need to continue. And I, and I really, you know, after every lecture that I did, I said, this is the last one. I don't want to do this anymore. I didn't come to... Dawson, Minnesota, to teach people about Islam. Islam is very, it's a very personal thing to me. I don't want to go talk about it. He doesn't want to talk about it, but he has to. That sounds familiar, right? I mean, he hoped he wouldn't. But November 9th, 2016, the election of Donald Trump, that made it so that he had to. He had to do it for his survival. He had to do it to stay in his town, I mean, to help his family and his people survive in America. But how could he do this? How could he choose to go out and spend time with people who hate Muslims? How much good in these people should he really be trying to see? What is it like to roll into a place like Dawson with your family, this small sort of idyllic town in the middle of America? What is What are you thinking about in those moments? So when we first moved here, uh, you know, everything just felt right. I mean, the people were great. When, when we came for the interview, I remember because I came with Masarat and I guess I can't remember. I think two of the kids came with us. And we had this discussion because Masarit, who's my wife, and she's wonderful, um, she, she knew that I wasn't happy with just doing, you know, the medicine I was practicing and that this was bothering me and I wanted to do something better. And so she encouraged me to continue to, to think about, you know, a rural medicine type uh, practice. When we came here, because we remembered very clearly the Islamophobia post 9-11, and experiencing that. And I remember my wife being chased by, you know, with a baseball bat in the car. And that was really traumatic. In fact, she still remembers that quite routinely. So we had gone 10 rounds with this. We, we didn't want to ever go through it again. So yeah. I told her, I said, listen, the, the, if somebody even looks at us wrong, we're not going to take the position, you know. And it wasn't just about seeing the hospital. and But it was how do you feel around the people? Are you going to get the stares? You know, when you walk into a room, how people kind of, you can feel the stares. And I guess she's a professional at experiencing those stares because she <laughs> is more visible than I am because she wears a headscarf. I can blend in a yeah. little bit easier. And I said, listen, the smallest discomfort, we just won't take the position. Very simple. We won't make, we won't make the move. And when we came here, everything was, was perfect. I mean, we, everybody that we met was so gracious and so kind. Nobody stared at her. And people, I remember mm. when we went to the school, that, that was a big deal for us too because we were worried about kind of bullying and things of that sort. And mm. we were, we walked in and there was like four people lined up, uh, the principal and several of the staff members and ancillary teachers, et cetera. And they were like, welcome to Dawson. It was almost very picturesque. It was like a, almost like, I tell people it was like our personal storybook. It was like a little fantasy. It was, <laughs> you know, everybody was so nice and you had the town butcher. Everybody knows one another and everybody waves and, and the smiles are genuine. And, you know, 
that's the impression we got. And then we had, I went to the hospital. I loved the hospital. And then we had dinner with the other providers and some uh, of the local uh, residents. And everything just felt really, really good. And it felt right. Retrospectively, I, I think, how much is it because they just really needed a doctor here? It's long been an unspoken rule that everything good about America is inextricably tied to everything bad about America. This country prides itself on common folk, on good, hardworking, God-fearing people, people with values like freedom and fairness. And there are people like that. How many political spots and truck ads and multinational oil conglomerate commercials have you seen featuring slow motion drives down Main Street, USA, where the people in the flags wave? Probably more than you can count. When Trayvon Martin was killed by George Zimmerman in 2013, something in my life changed. Something in my relationship to America changed. It wasn't that I didn't know how racist we were as a country. It was that I didn't know how many other people didn't know. I didn't know how many of you didn't know. So I started talking about it. First on Facebook and then at work where I was the only black person in my whole company and then on blogs, and then on websites, and then in magazines, and then in newspapers, and now here on this podcast. But I didn't start doing it because I wanted to do it. I did it because I had to. Because people are always looking for a way out of responsibility. You can't just tell them that they're a part of the problem. You have to show them. You have to show them again and again and again. And then you have to be questioned by them and, and name-called and, and, and doubted and well actually every day. It's exhausting and it's annoying and it's shitty. But ignoring it ceases to be an option. And so you wait and wait until it ceases to be an option for everyone else. So I guess, again, so in some ways you kind of got to the next question I had, which is like that, you know, first of all, on the, on a larger scale, this juxtaposition between, between beautiful small town values where things are clean and the people are genuine and everyone waves and everyone knows the mailman, the juxtaposition between that and some of the ugliness that can exist if you're not white in those places is a big part of the American story. I think I've experienced that. I think we all have. But I want to, as a person who has been in this community for a while, I want to know what you think accounts for the how those two things can coexist. How can a place with such kindness and such commitment to values also have supported someone like the president that you described? I mean, I can't have a really honest conversation with individuals here about that because I am the town doctor. Nobody wants to offend me. Nobody mm. wants me to go. And these are good people, you know. These are good people who are working and they have problems. And I, I have the benefit of being a physician and seeing people at their most vulnerable. And, you know, you know, I have to, you know, just several days ago, I had to tell somebody that they had multiple myeloma, which is a very fatal and painful cancer. And it's not fun and it's 
difficult and, you know, people like that are the true kind of heroes and, and stand up with courage. And, you know, I think, um, when I have those experiences, you know, one of the things that I try to do, and this is probably, this comes from my religion, from um, Ali ibn Abu Talib, who was one of the successors of the prophet. He said, you should always treat people like they're better than you. And if you're not mm. doing that, then you're not a Muslim. So mm. I take that to heart. To me, mm. every time I see a patient, every time I see a person, I think that they're better than I am. And I treat them that way because it's true. They're better than me at something, no doubt about mm -hmm. that. And <laughs> as a physician, when I explore yeah. people's lives and backgrounds, they end up becoming my teachers. And I, I, I learn so much more about depth. And I've just come to the conclusion that all of us... Now, granted, this philosophy of treating people like they're better than you was challenged with this president. <laughs> yeah. Do you think you can treat Trump like he's better than you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's one I struggle with. I still do. And, but you know what? He's a better con man than I am. So, yeah. but anyway, it's, it's so, so people here, I really think, and I, I do believe this in my heart that all of us have this brilliance in us. All of us do. And the bad stuff that we've put on top of that, we've done it through our experiences. We've done it because of our bad choices. None of us are inherently evil. And, and we are all brilliant. All of us, every, even, even somebody who is as kind of narcissistic in, in evil uh, words and, and things as, you know, the current commander in chief, we have this, you know, uh, light in us. And I think that that has helped me at least try to break it down further when I talk to people. If I didn't believe there was goodness in everyone, then I would have given up a long time ago. But just because there is goodness in everything doesn't mean everything is good. You have to acknowledge the sheer awfulness of what we face. But you have to do it without disappearing behind a cloud of anger or fear or despair. It's hard. It makes me think about my conversation with Mahershala Ali, who talked about seeing the love and kindness and goodness in people, or even here with Dr. Virji, who was talking about seeing goodness in people. It's a message that gets easily co-opted. This country has a way of hiding behind optimism and faith in order to avoid taking action, of prioritizing forgiveness and thoughts and prayers rather than taking action. Accusing people of not having enough hope, of not loving America enough, when they just have valid criticisms of how this country treats its citizens. It's bullshit. But still, it takes a toll. And it starts when you're young. Even when you're a kid. Just like Trump getting elected changed the way that I saw... I think it definitely changed the way I saw people that had different opinions than me. You remember my son, Ezra? And it made me just, like, resent them. And, like, you know, and, like, really just have, have this, like, hatred for them that I don't know if I would have had if I grew up in a world like, you know, in, like, an Obama world where we had an, a woman president or... You know, like a Jewish president or another black president or something like that. Georgia, do you think that you, that, that this 
this election and this situation has changed your behavior on a daily basis at all? Or, or if so, how? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't, maybe. And, of course, this is my daughter, Georgia, my 12-year-old. I mean, it could have changed my behavior on a daily basis. Like, I do think that we need to be definitely more accepting to all types of people and everybody because, like, everybody... The, more, the kinder you are to other people, the kinder they are to you, which is just a normal, like, thing that everybody knows. And I think that the thing is, everybody's trying to achieve happiness, and everybody thinks of it in a different way, and thinks that we can get it in a different way. I don't know if she's right. I mean, even though I taught her that, <laughs> I don't know anymore if she's right. I don't know if the kinder you are to people, the kinder they are to you. I wish that was true, but I also wish my daughter didn't believe that. What I actually believe is that the kinder you are to people, to everyone, the more you treat each human life like it has worth, and then the harder it is for you to crumble under the hate and the fear and the despair, the less you hate yourself, the harder it is for you to become a part of the problem. Do you think it's possible for someone to be virulently anti-Islam, to wish harm for you and for your family, and also to be a good person? Yes. I do. Or let's go back to the guy who said I was the Antichrist, okay? Yeah. And um, let's, uh, you know, I will never change him. He just, he has that stance and that's it. He, he could be the same guy who has adopted a child with cerebral palsy and has spent his mm. life taking care of this individual. He could be the mm. same guy who volunteers at a soup kitchen. He could be the same guy who goes on a mission trip to Africa and helps build houses for people, you know. So there, he could be doing all those things. And that's that inner light that just won't go away. But the, the things that he said and, and, and the idea that um that he had was based upon you know ignorance and that's unfortunate because you know in all of the major world religions the emphasis on scholarship and understanding and wisdom is is very uh is very great and in, in islam it says the ink of a scholar is holier than the blood of a martyr and in proverbs in the bible it says you know you should never think you're wiser than you are uh, God loves those who he corrects and, and wisdom is, is priceless. There's nothing that can compare to it. It's more valuable than jewels and God created the world with his Sophia, with his wisdom. So people who I think sometimes minimize their religion to just a belief versus the whole package, they'll get the package of the heart and the mind. And many people have a great heart, but their mind has been distracted or diluted because of ignorance. Um, so you suggest that like knowledge uh, is the is the opposite of ignorance that it brings light to where there is darkness, which makes sense. So the question isn't really can is there something that can help? Yes, knowledge could help. The question is, can we as a collective calm down enough to receive the knowledge? In other words, my limbic system is on fire. <laughs> my sense of life and death is triggered. Yeah. And is and has been increasingly triggered. Like growing up as a black man in the U.S., there's a lot of life and death stuff that you go through, 
And I vividly remember being 13 or 14 and just kind of generally vaguely assuming that I was probably going to be dead by the time I was 25. Like, I don't know. It wasn't even like a morbid thought. It was like, yeah, I mean, come on. Like, there's so many ways I could die. Police, I could be shot by gangs. I could be shot in the street. Someone could be me. Like, this is, I'm probably going to be dead. Or I even thought I was going to end up in prison. Now, I was a kid going to school. I went to an arts high school. I was in like three Shakespeare, like, groups when i was in high school i was like reading you know john steinbeck on the butt like that's the kind of kid i was and i still thought there's probably some chance that i'm gonna end up in prison somehow i don't know how yet but i'm sure they'll figure something out like that's literally the way i thought and the kids i grew up around i think even more so the ones who actually were in life and death situations who did gangbang who did sell drugs who were in that life those kids even had that more and so that's always been there and then you start for me police shootings began to really start happening. So I'm thinking if that is my lived experience for many years from childhood up into, into my forties, that, that, that is many people's experience. And that one of the problems with this time is that it's, that becomes a, that becomes an infectious condition that now everyone feels a little bit life or deathy. Everyone, people on the left, people on the right, women, men, children, boys, Christians, Muslims, everyone feels a little under threat. And when when there's that much lighting up of the fight or flight response, yeah. I wonder, can people actually like receive knowledge, take time to engage critical thinking? I wonder what you think about that. No, I think you you've really hit it on the head. And I think you've very... Uh, emotionally actually uh, define some deep issues as far as how how deep this can make somebody feel and how much it can hurt. And man, I have my bad days too. You know, all of us have our vices that we deal with, you know. Mm-hmm. One of my issues is anger, you know. I just, I get angry and I have to temper myself. And one of the things I do, and I, I do this all the time, is I, I, I ask myself, you know, who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? Who am I? I'm a caretaker. I'm a caretaker to whoever has been put under my care, that being my family, my patients, my community. I need to do this. And it's not about what I want to do. It's about what needs to be done. I didn't think I would live past age 25. I didn't even try. I just taught myself not to care. I abandoned relationships and retreated into drugs and alcohol and junk food. I didn't believe in life. I only believed in waiting for death. And I wasn't the only person who did this. I watched my family members do this generations before me. I watched us grasp on to whatever distractions could keep us from having to feel how incredibly painful and hard it is to fight for life in a country that keeps lying to you, that keeps trying to kill you. Rodney King. Abner Luima, Patrick Dorismond, Oscar Grant, Trayvon Martin, those names were warnings. They made you feel like what happened to them could happen to you, that it would happen to you. That is terrorism. That teaches you to keep your head down because you're afraid of what will be done to you if you don't. And you have to resist that 
because that will make you afraid to live. And in order to survive, you have to not be afraid to live. But then in order to fully live, you have to not be afraid to die. Some of us got money. We bought TVs and houses and filled refrigerators and freezers with food. Some of us got guns and cigarettes and smoked weed until nothing was real. We had to do that, even to leave the house. We just wanted out of being alive, of feeling, of struggling. We just wanted out. But for some of us, out never came. Instead, Trump did. So what now? I have this childhood friend who I haven't seen in 32 years. In a town I haven't been to in close to two decades. We grew up together. We both thought we'd be dead by the time we were 25. We're 43 now. Next week, I'm going to go talk to him. Next week, I'm going to go home. One last thing before we go. Thanks, Carvel. My name is Derek. Uh, I live in Massachusetts. This message is for my old teacher, Mark. Last week, I asked you to imagine a person that you didn't want to talk to. Someone you'd hurt or someone who would hurt you. And a lot of you called. Here's just one. Why did you treat me so differently? Like, what happened to you in the past that made you hate, hate my blackness? I have had this resentment for him for the last 15 years, which is how long it's been since I've been in high school. I'm doing fine right now, you know, I, as far as, like, I have a family of five. Um, I live in a nice house. The kids are going to a private school. But I, I have insecurities, self-confidence issues. And a lot of this stems from high school and middle school. And I was the only African-American in the school. It was a very trying time for me. And, I, and guys like Mark really mentally destroyed me and I feel weird saying that out loud because I don't think I've ever really said that out loud so the first time I heard this I was in public and I had to put my head down because I didn't want anyone to see me crying um I would to to Derek I would say I know this hurts. What this person did to you and the way they treated you is not your fault. It's not a reflection on your worth or your value or how important you are. You have value. You deserve to be here. This is actually a mantra that I have. (laughs) (laughs) in my own life. It's very embarrassing. (laughs) I can't believe I'm telling people, but there are times in my life in which I actually have to say that to myself dozens of times in a row just to make it through like a 20-minute stretch of depression or anxiety. You have value. You deserve to be here. And uh, 
when your child and an adult treats you this way, they make you question your worth. They make, at least in my case, they made me question what I did to deserve this treatment. Like being black was somehow my fault. And the racist treatment that I received was like a reflection of something wrong with me. And my whole adult life has been trying to unlearn that. And I want you to know from me to you that you don't have to carry that. I also want to hear more of these stories. Even though it sometimes hurts, I want to hear more of these stories. What do you need to say? Who do you need to say it to? Call me and tell me at 949-522-5587. That's 949-522-5587. Leave a voicemail. You don't have to use your name if you don't want to, and you might hear yourself on the show. Or you can tell us your story on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Closer Show. And if you've actually had one of these hard conversations, what was that like? Call and tell me about that, too. Thanks. You've been listening to Closer Than They Appear from Jetty Studios. I would really love to hear from you. So write the show a review on Apple Podcasts or find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Closer Show. And you can always find links to episodes and full transcripts on our website, closerthantheyappear.fm. Our senior producer is Casey Miner. Our producer is Lacey Roberts and our editor is Leela Day. Graylin Brashear and Paulina Lamonier run our social media. And our associate producer is Meredith Hodnott. Our show is engineered by Mark Bain with mixing and sound design by Ian Koss. Music is by Antique Naked Soul. You can hear more of them at antique-music.com. Megan Jones runs our podcast operations, and Jessica Wang is our senior video producer. Special thanks to Andrew Sterner and Stephanie McCrumman, whose article in the Washington Post is how we first learned about Dr. Virji. Jetty's executive producer is Julie Kane, and the general manager is Kazar Kampwala. Until next week, thanks for listening. Jenny.